This is Neijing Now, prioritizing well-being. Neijing is the vitality that shields us from disease. Neijing Now, demystifying medicine, cultivating resilience, empowering host resistance, prioritizing primary prevention. I'm Dr. Jayshree Chander. I welcome you to another short clip exploring Neijing Now. I'm speaking with Dr. Matteo Bortolini. He's a sociologist from the University of Padova. He's in Berkeley at the moment doing archival research for a biography he's writing about Dr. Robert Bella, the author of the very well-known Habits of the Heart. Matteo, welcome to Neijing Now. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Matteo, can you tell me what's so great about Robert Bella and his work? Yeah. Uh, Robert Bella was a sociologist. He was born in 1927, and he was educated at Harvard and was a member of the faculty at Harvard until 1967 when he moved to Berkeley. And he became a professor of sociology and Eastern cultures and religions. He was um, a very famous public intellectual, speaking on matters of religion and politics in America especially and also Eastern religions. He also was a theologian, a public philosopher, so somebody who digs deep into a tradition and tries to renew old ideas in contemporary times. His most important and famous book was Habits of the Heart, which he co-wrote with other four younger colleagues, and it was published in 1985. It was a book about individualism and commitment in American culture, and at the time it was at the center of a huge debate that touched uh, not only scholars or intellectuals, but also everyday people and groups and churches and all kinds of people. Yeah. So it's an interesting title for the book, Habits of the Heart, because it makes me think of personal relationship, growth and development book, maybe a pop psychology sort of thing. So tell me about the title and what it has to do with individualism and commitment. Sure. The title comes from an expression you find in Democracy in America, which is a very famous book by the French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville, who came in the late 19th century in America. The phrase habits of the heart, the idea is that each one of us has some deep ingrained habits that are like a second nature, but they are learned culturally and socially learned, and you behave in some ways in a completely unreflexive way. So the main point of the book is that habits of the American heart is some form of individualism. Americans have problems in managing their relationships because they first see themselves as individuals, as unique human beings, which are from the beginning autonomous, the individuals think of themselves before the relationships. They think that relationships are something that individuals do after they are individuals. You hear this all the time, you know, you hear about people who don't want to find an intimate partner until they've worked on themselves because then they'll perfect themselves and then be ready for a relationship. Right, that's the idea that comes from um, 17th and 18th century Anglo-Saxon philosophy. Philosophers just like Thomas Hobbes or John Locke and even Rousseau in France. These guys thought that at the beginning, in a state of nature, each one of us is an individual, complete. You are okay by yourself and then you enter into a relationship with others. The very point of the book is that these are not old philosophical ideas for philosophers or learned persons or scholars, but those are kind of common sense for Americans. You have to be careful with that because if you think yourself as an individual, it doesn't mean that you're an egoist 
or that you're instrumental toward the others. The point is you can be caring, you can be very good, you can be very altruistic or whatever, but you first put yourself before everything else. It's a matter of right, it's a matter of decision, it's a matter of autonomy. So you can be the most caring person, the most compassionate person, the most altruistic person, but you frame that as your own decision. It's not anything you have to do. It's not a duty. So for the authors of Habits of the Heart, this way of thinking of ourselves is deeply problematic because it ruins society and makes every individual unrooted. I can imagine American people feeling very defensive about this, saying that, well, actually, we're the greatest society on earth. <laughs> look at what we're accomplishing and look at how we rule the world, essentially. And everybody wants to be like us. I don't think so. We don't want to be like you, actually. No, but I'm just saying that this would be a defensive argument. Sure, it is. And I'm sure there are very good reasons for such an argument. It depends on how you look at your society and how you evaluate your society. The measures of success. Yeah. If you say we are the richest country in the world, okay, I can say that. But in terms of, say, solidarity or welfare systems... That's communist ideas. Those are not. Those are just the ideas of a society based on solidarity between individuals where the state and political institutions are not thought as a night watchman. So liberals and utilitarians in the 18th century used to consider the state and political institutions as a night watchman, somebody who just has to be sure that your properties are right, that there are no thieves around, and everything is protected. You see, there is a, a line that goes from an individualistic conception of the self to an instrumental conception of political institutions. If I should be right to decide for myself, and I don't feel any duty towards the others, politics only is good if it protects me from the invasion and the violence of the others. While in Europe, which is slightly more collectivistic, political institutions are somehow a representation and you would say an incarnation of citizens. And so it's the duty of the state to provide some basic services to all citizens, regardless of their income and their social position and whatever. And that's the very idea beyond national healthcare systems and national security systems. And it's not communistic or socialistic. It's just the idea that individuals themselves cannot do everything on their own. And that if you fail, it's not always your failure. It just can be uh, social structures and social determinants that determine your fate. Luck and circumstance. Oh, yes, a lot of luck. But you can't do anything against luck by definition, right? Right. So we in America, you're correct, pride ourselves in our independence. You will hear even very old, frail people say that they prefer to live independently. They don't want to be a burden on anyone else. Even straight out of the crib, parents will put their children in a separate room, even from the age of four months old or six months old. It's kind of a life cycle pride in being independent. The ultimate ideal is to live in your own apartment by yourself. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, if you know anything about Italy, you know that in Italy, we are accustomed to live with our parents up until we are like 28 or 30, something like that. But the very point of that book is not that it says that you have to abandon individualism 100%. 
but if you start to think of yourself as deeply embedded into relationships and you start to feel some duty and responsibility toward not other individuals, but relationships themselves, if you think about your family and your friends, I'm sure you feel some responsibility toward some members of your family and members of your friend circle or whatever as individuals, not as relationships. And the point of the book is that we don't have a vocabulary and we don't have the cultural and meaningful resources to think ourselves as embedded in society. That very deep and strong autonomy you were talking about certainly is something that is deeply ingrained in American culture. I'm sure that it's one of the reasons why America is so successful as a society from a certain point of view. But let me make you an example. Think about the army. Going to the army is not a duty now. It's just like a voluntary decision on the part of individuals, which means that it's not anything you do as a citizen, but it's just another job, right? If you need a job and you cannot find a job, you end up in the army. And if you see the numbers of the American army, the ethnic groups and the geographical groups and the income groups that form the army now are the lowest one because rich people don't want to go into the army and they are willing to pay poor people and minorities to go into the army and get killed for the interest of who knows what. And you can ask yourself, why should we have an army made of American citizens if it's just a job? You could have an army made of Swiss soldiers. Swiss soldiers would be very expensive. We would prefer soldiers from Ethiopia. Yeah, sure, right. <laughs> Yeah, right. It came to my mind Swiss because you know that the guards at the Vatican are Swiss guards. So that's the first uh, example that comes to my mind in my Italian culture. So but yeah, that, you're correct. That's the point. Why having a national army made up of national citizens if you are going to pay them and there's no duty? Well, because the risk of traitorship would be less. The point is, if you pay somebody very poor coming from a LA ghetto, you can pay somebody coming from Ethiopia. Because the real difference is going to the army as a duty of a citizen, as in a 16th century or 18th century or whatever century republic. And the very word republic means a common thing we share in common. If we share something in common, we have to take care of that thing. We just cannot say it's not my business. I have other things to do. I have my job. I have my family. I have my friends. If you don't take care of the common thing of the Respublica, the Respublica just is destroyed. It exists only if people take care of that. And people take care of that only if they think that it's worth it. So you speak about obligation or duty, you know, then freedom of choice. In America, freedom of choice is primary and obligation and duty is secondary. There is an argument to be said that if you do things out of obligation and duty, that is insincere and it's like a violation of your integrity. Sure, it's a good argument only if you are already in that individualistic framework. Sincerity is not a good thing wherever and whenever. Take, for example, other kinds of religions. Orthodox Judaism is not based on sincerity, it's not based on belief. It's based on rituals and things that you have to do. And nobody really cares if you're sincere in doing that. You just do it. You have to do it. It's a duty to do it. But take another fairly common example, very easy example that we use always in our Sociology 101 courses. When you meet somebody and you ask, how do you do? 
and people are somehow forced, have the duty for social reasons to say, oh, everything is good. And what about you? And you say, everything's good. Maybe it's not true. Maybe you're not sincere in saying that. But that's a ritual. That's something you have to do. That's a social relationship. That it's meant not to say something about you. It's not to convey any information about you and your state. But it's meant to create a bond between you and the other person so that you can get along together. Sincerity only is a problem if you put yourself in that individualistic framework. I'm sure that you can think of a thousand other examples in which sincerity will destroy your relationships instead of healing them. For example... For example, if you're if you cheat on your girlfriend but you still love her and she asks you if you cheated on her, you say no. That's not true. You're not being sincere, but maybe you just made a mistake and you don't want to ruin your relationship. So what? So you're wrong or you're right? If you judge that situation from the standpoint of the individual that should always be himself or herself and speak out what he feels and whatever. You're being insincere, so you're wrong. But if you look at the situation from the standpoint of relationships, sometimes relationships are more important than you are. Relationships are important because they make what you are. If you lose that girlfriend, you're not going to be yourself again. Not that yourself. You're not being sincere, you cheated, and now you're lying. These all sound like terrible things, right? If the relationship was primary, then your individual needs at the moment that you were cheating would be secondary and you would make different choices. Oh, yeah, you're right. But you ju just cannot solve that problem. I mean, people break the rules all the time. The interesting point, I think, as a sociologist is what do they do to put things together after they've broken the rules? Sometimes, and maybe half of the time, and maybe more than half of the time, uh, sincerity is not what can heal a relationship that has been broken. But, you know, your questions are very interesting because they take for granted that sincerity is a very important thing. I have to tell your listeners a great book by a sociologist whose name is Adam Seligman, who's a friend of mine and teaches at Boston University in Boston. He wrote a book about sincerity and ritual, and the title is Ritual and Its Consequences. And it's an attempt to show how these two models, the individualistic models and the relationship-based models, are so different about this very point of sincerity. It's a, an amazing read for everybody and it's full of examples and stories from ancient times and Judaism and Confucianism and whatever. Interesting. So if you're telling us that Europe leans towards the relationship model and America leans towards the individualistic model and we're making the tie with even intimate relationships, do we have data about divorce rates? Oh yeah, sure. Divorce rates is not the real problem. The very interesting problem is what you do after that. So I would say that on the average, people divorce more in the US and the UK because UK really is very similar to the US. It's not Europe at all from this point of view, right? They divorce more than other Europeans, but also they remarry more. They remarry and then remarry and then remarry many times. And that's the real interesting thing because the point is that Families are important for people. They find fulfillment and they like to take vows. They believe that they can be happy again with another person. 
But the point is, what is marriage about? Here, it's easier to marry and divorce and remarry and re-divorce and remarry a third time and whatever. Might be easier, might be expensive too. Though. It's expensive, but it's easier because that bond is more akin to a contract between two individuals. The social aspect is, I won't say entirely missing, but it's very tenuous. You mean the social aspect in terms of the relationship with the extended family of your partner? You know, marriage is the social recognition of a bond between two people, right? I mean, you can live with another person, with a girl or a man, I don't care, for all your life without being married. You can have a very strong relationship and that relationship can last for 40 years. Even if you don't go to the city hall or a church so if you need society to recognize your relationship, then you want to marry. If you don't care, you don't. What changed is that marriage became more and more similar to a contract. For example, I sell you a fridge and you give me money back, or I give you my car and you give me your bike, right? You can't have my bike. Yeah, you, they are easier to make and they are easier to break. That's why in Anglo-Saxon societies, which are more individualistically based, gay marriage is easier. Robert Bella used to say about gay marriage, extending marriage to gay people will strengthen the institution of marriage. That means that more people are making their promises to each other in a public way. How would you say the social fabric becomes stronger and not weaker? Yeah, obviously, if you state your promises in front of 100 people or 400 people, then there's a certain pressure to keep them. Right. And also responsibilities towards the children. So speaking of intergenerational relationships in Europe, how are the elderly taken care of? So we have two models. The more you go towards north of continental Europe, you have very good state services for the elderly because it's the whole community that takes care of them as citizens. The whole political community feels a duty to help those who have been working for so many years. And so you have very good services. What if they've been unemployed their whole life? Oh, that doesn't really matter. See, that matters here in America. Your social security income is completely based on what you've earned throughout your life. Yeah, sure. And that's the difference between the US and Europe because it is seen as something that society as a whole owes to you just because you're a citizen and then we care about you because you're one of us. In many places, in Italy, for example, basic healthcare is extended even to immigrants, both immigrants who have no Italian citizenship, but they have the documents and they are regular, but also to irregular immigrants. I mean, they can walk in in an hospital, both the nurse and the doctors are obliged not to ask them the documents. So you just get basic healthcare for free without being anybody, so to say, from a formal point of view. That's very humane. Yeah, that is. And that's the north of Europe. The more you come to Mediterranean cultures and societies like uh, Spain and Greece and the Balkans, maybe Italy, welfare services are weaker, but there is a strong obligation within the family to take care of elder people. 90% of the times the women in the family, and that's not fair, obviously. Or else you just hire somebody like a nurse or somebody. And that's affordable? Yeah, because, you know, there are a number of immigrants from Eastern Europe. 
from the American point of view, it would be very clear that for my individual health and happiness, I would put myself first. What would be the incentive for an individual to put their desires and happiness aside to sacrifice it for the collective? This is a very good question because you say, what is the incentive? Which means that you put yourself first and you want something back. Yeah, you want to get something out of it if you're going to put your own desires aside. You're right. So you give something of your autonomy and you want something back. But the point is, the very concept of duty is something you do without asking what will be my reward. It's just something you have to do. That actually sounds like love. When you love, then you're not expecting anything back. But when you have a duty... No, duty is a duty. It's something you have to do. That's it. You don't ask yourself what good can come to me. You just do it because you feel you have to do it, because you feel a responsibility or you feel a debt towards the others. Okay, you feel indebted to the others. Right. And that's the same, say, you in ancient Indian culture and ancient Japanese culture, you feel a debt towards society. So, yeah, in India, you feel forever indebted to your parents. You can never, ever, 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 ever pay back the debt to your parents because without them, you don't exist. That's the very point. But if you're already into an individualistic culture, you look for an incentive and you've lost the idea of duty, the unconditional idea of duty. I can see how it is important for the collective well-being. It's important for the stability of society, especially if, say, in places where there isn't a strong state system of welfare. The joint family system in India is essential because there's no social security that's going to come in and take care of you when you're old. There's no daycares that you can just drop your kids off at and go to work. You have to have a division of labor in your tribe to keep society functioning. But how is this sense of duty? Why is this important for my individual health and happiness? In one sense, Robert Bella would say that if you understand that you're not an individual first, but you are the product of relationships and relationships should be cared about, that makes your life more fulfilling. I would resort to the answer of another philosopher of the 20th century, which is maybe my favorite, if I can say something like that, Anna Arendt. She was a German philosopher in the Heideggerian tradition, and she wrote a most amazing book called The Human Condition. Anna Arendt said, human beings are not able to know anything about themselves if we don't ask other people to tell us who we are. That, I really think, is a convincing answer. To do that, you have to be out the individualistic trip because the basis of the individualistic trip is I have no roots, I have no need for others, I know who I am, I can be an autonomous, free self, I can decide for myself, I decide that I love you a lot, I decide that I care you a lot, but it's me who decides. In Anna Arendt's idea, it's others that will tell me my story and it's others who will tell me who I am. And it's the same for the other people, right? So they gaze at you, you gaze at them. Yeah, well, it's all very fascinating, especially in the light of the epidemic we have in America of depression and isolation and loneliness. It's severe. There is something that needs to be examined within the society. It's not just an individual problem of so many individuals being depressed and lonely. It's a deep cultural issue. 
Right. And also, you know what? Being under the gaze of the other and letting the other tell you who you are is very risky because maybe you will discover something that you don't want to know or something that is so different from what do you think about yourself. And she would really say that that kind of action that you perform in front of the others just to understand who you are is a matter of life and death. And she would say somebody should be very brave to do that. And so maybe that's why a lot of people just prefer to take pills and stay home. And it needs a big heart to do that, right? Because you go out, you open the door, you go out in the street, and you never know who you're going to be when you come home. Although you have to be careful because, you know, when I go out the door in India and I walk out the door in America and I have another person that I am and I walk out the door in Europe and that's another person that I am. So there's probably a balance between giving all your power to the reflection and also using your own discernment to investigate who you are. Yeah, you're so right that Anna Rand said that the first basic right of every person should be having a home of her own because you cannot be under the gaze of the other all the time. You have to have a very safe place that it's your own where you can go home and close the door and think about yourself and reconstruct all the pieces to create some synthesis, synthesis or a single story out of them. The more the social fabric gets holes and it's weaker, the more you have to do that on your own. And that's a big burden. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. I wish you a lot of success in the biography you're writing, Matteo, and I look forward to further conversations. Oh, thanks a lot. And it was a pleasure for me being here and talk to you. That was Dr. Matteo Bortolini from the University of Padua. I'm Dr. Jayshri Chandar, creator of Naging Now, a podcast about prioritizing well-being, on the web at neijingnow.org. Naging Now is independent and entirely listener-supported. If you enjoyed the clip, please share it with your friends. Like us on Facebook and donate generously. Your support is essential to keeping Naging Now alive. <laughs>